Hello and welcome to Marriott Hotels In Focus Empowering Podcast Series, which brings together some of the UK's brightest minds to help you reach your full potential and inspire you on your travels. From self-care to side hustles, it explores career trends to offer advice, guidance and practical tips to those who want to get ahead in their careers. Today we're here to talk about self-care. We'll be exploring what it means, the best practices and how it can help pave the way for success. My name's Pandora Sykes, I'm a journalist and podcaster, and I'm here with four panellists who have a lot of experience in this area. We have here Nadia Narain and Katia Narain phillips I'm Nadia and I teach yoga and Katia and I wrote a book called Self-Care for the Real World and Rituals for Every Day. I'm Katia and I have a cafe in Tri Yoga called the Nectar Cafe and I cook. And Doctor Doctor? Doctor, yes. Yeah, don't look so surprised. <laughs> I suddenly <laughs> just realised it wasn't here and then I made that up. And Doctor Andy Cope. Yes, I have been studying the science of happiness for about twelve years. Well, in fact almost exactly twelve years at Loughborough Uni. I am the UK's one and only Doctor of Happiness and I, I do appreciate that sounds a bit cheesy, but I've got hundred and thirty thousand academic words, but I thought it'd be really smart tonight if we have a chat. And we lose the big words and we keep it. How can we feel amazing against the odds? Great. And Laura Archer. Yeah, um, I am author of Gone for Lunch, 52 Things to Do in Your Lunch Break. Um, I started a blog a couple of years ago about using your lunch break to do sort of creative, productive and sociable things and the impact that that has on your kind of happiness and your productivity at work. Um, So I suppose you could say I'm a sort of champion of a healthy work-life balance. Let's start by discussing what self-care means. Andy, what does self-care mean to you? Self-care for me, I think, is about around your mojo, around how you feel and about maintaining your mojo. And your, and your, there's, a, there's a cliche that you, you only live once, but I think you only die once. I think you live every single day. But we, I mean, uh, this is, we're recording this in London. I've been wandering around London for the, London for the last two days. And there's a, there's, I don't know if you've seen the movie Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, but there's a, it's quite a spooky movie. There's a line in that movie where this little guy says to Bruce Willis, he says, I see dead people. And I've, I've been seeing them for the last couple of days. You know, like there's a pulse, but there isn't much else. So there's a lot of people kind of sleepwalking their way through their life. And I think um, self-care to me is about not being one of the dead people, being like properly alive, like fully alive. Kudos for getting Bruce Willis into a uh, definition of self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia, what does self-care mean to you? I like to think of it as looking after yourself as you would take care of someone that you really love. I think it's much easier for us to take care of our children and our spouses and our best friends in a kind and loving way. But for some reason with ourselves, we give give ourselves a much harder time. So it's just trying to have a little more of a kind and gentle attitude towards ourselves, which is not very English. That's such a true (laughs) point that we treat other people better than we would treat ourselves. Why do you think looking after yourself comes so low on people's priority list it's always kind of the last you think I'll do that if I've if I've got time if I've done everything else that's more important well I think in other traditions it is we um, in the Buddhist tradition you are taught from a very young age to take care of yourself but in sort of Christianity and in English culture, it's self-indulgent or considered self-indulgent. But if we don't actually look after ourselves, we don't have enough to give other people. And as a mother, as you know, that if you are waning or you are tired, your whole family kind of pays a price for that. So it's intelligence to actually look after yourself first. Cassia, what about for you? What does self-care mean? For me, it's about giving myself some time and space. When I have that time and space, I'm able to really check in with myself and to figure out how I'm feeling so I'm not over-pushing myself, over-exhausting myself, over-eating or under-eating, keeping hydrated, and all of those things. I think, um, like what Andy was saying, is people are walking around with a pulse, but that's about it. And that they're not even they, they don't realize how they're feeling about things emotionally physically and when you check in with yourself and have awareness to your emotions and your physical body you're able to make so many different decisions about how you're going to conduct your days mm. so i mean in our book it's all about small steps as well mm-hmm. so that you don't 
overwhelm yourself with these big ideas of, okay, I'm going to have no sugar for a year, but just these really small steps that can give you so much time and relaxation in short periods that you can just keep going for you know the year to keep you going your books really break down that it doesn't as you say need to be this kind of herculean task like when you make new year's resolutions and they're always something massive like learn french or learn the guitar (laughs) and you never end up doing them and then you have a whole new list the year after but i was reading your newest book in the bath and I think it's something about just giving yourself like a five minute facial massage and I sat on the loo and I gave myself a massage and I was like (laughs) this is really nice and it's five minutes god anyone can do this for five minutes Laura what about for you um it's probably a bit (laughs) a bit of what everyone said I think it's it's probably closest to what Nadia said and that for me it's sort of knowing when to say no I'm a massive yes person yes. and I basically lived my entire 20s with the rule of say yes to everything and then kind of burnt out at the end of them and now mm. I say no to everything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, I've got a friend who works in social care and she said the first rule they're taught is to put yourself first and I really struggled with understanding how you could work in care and put yourself first. Um, but she said if you don't put yourself first, then you're not going to be there for the other people. So it's really similar to what you're saying. Mask yeah, exactly. Then, then you can't. can't put on everyone else's. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, just knowing when to say no, knowing when to take a break and when to just kind of pull yourself out of the fast lane just for a bit so you can like go back in and carry on with everything you need to do. I think that's interesting that you say the power of no, because the there was a book, wasn't there, wasn't there about the power of saying the yes man yes. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah and I feel like that was a real point in time when we were seeing people throwing themselves into lots of things and now there are so many things that you can be involved in that it's got to the point as you say where we're now having to take stock and flip mm. flip the other way do you think self-care how much is self-care about saying no that almost makes it sound like it's got quite a negative spin but it it does I think it's um <laughs> I think it it's kind of just that moment of stopping and thinking before you answer something so it doesn't mean you necessarily have to say no it's just that you don't instantly say yes because I think I just used to instantly say yes to some something or someone or anything and now as soon as someone says something or asks me to do something I have to say oh let me think about that and then give my answer even if it's 30 seconds later but I've got to train myself to say let me think about it first because I would just say yes without even thinking about it I think I think it boils down to most people are living life fast but are we living it well mm-hmm. and I don't think we are I think uh, you know I I um I did a, a session in a school with 409 year olds and I announced to these kids you're going to live on average for 4,000 weeks and these kids are like oh my gosh that's like forever that's brilliant they were leap, literally leaping around the hall punching the air but if you announce that to a corporate audience or a bunch of adults, you're going to live for 4,000 weeks, there's less punching in the air and there's a bit more of a collective gulp. There's a tumbleweed moment as they consider how many they've has passed them by. So I think it, I think this podcast is a bit of a time out from that, actually. And I think, um, you know, you've really raised the bar here in the conversation about taking a step back and daring to say no. I think it comes with maturity, actually. It comes with experience mm. as well. There are a lot of people on the edges of burnout. There's a lot of people that are on the edges of exhaustion. And in fact, there were 58 million prescriptions written for antidepressants in England last year, just in England. So there's an epidemic of unhappiness out there. Um, so it'd be really cool, I think, if we share some ideas about how to uh, how to keep your mojo and keep yourself, you know, self-care is your gift to the world, isn't it? Your your happiness, your, your effervescence and your enthusiasm is your gift to the world. It's very true what you say about... Um depression i mean a quarter of a billion people in yeah. the world suffer from an anxiety yeah, disorder no i'll tell you what if you if you go into a british school now if you go into i do loads of work with kids is that age of depression and anxiety has come down and down and down so mm. i think it's about 14 now it's like the median age of people having panic attacks and uh, school phobias and all that kind of stuff so it's not just oldies like me who are, who are struggling mentally you know with the four thousand weeks thing it's it's kids are really struggling now with the pressures of the modern world i think growing up is like more pressurized than it ever has been so it's almost like this podcast is from anybody from 14 upwards i think i think it's as you become more progressive as a culture as well the more access and things we have to kind of better our lives the more that becomes fraught with its own worries are we living the best life we can and i think something i was talking about just today actually 
with um, with one of my editors was we're used to the idea of FOMO, but there was a new one that I heard recently, which is FOMOG. Don't know if that works out loud as an acronym. Fear of missing out on goals. And I think certainly for millennials, there's a real kind of, not even like a or- goal-orientated life. There's an obsession with goals. Mm-hmm. I subconsciously did it when I had a baby. I just had a baby and I was also then trying to achieve all, yeah. all these work things. And I think... For me, one of the reasons... I used to be quite sceptical of the idea of self-care. Before I met with you guys, in fact, I was very sceptical about it. And I thought, you know, people are just saying they're moisturising their legs and calling it self-care and it's so <laughs> indulgent. And I think what it is, is is it is that real antidote to the, the speed, the velocity yeah. at which we think we're trying to achieve everything. Now. And I think busyness has become a badge of honour and that then leads to all of these things that happen. It sounds so obvious when we're talking about it, mm-hmm. like reminding ourselves in 2018 that you need to go to bed and that mm. you need to eat food. It's like we're almost going back to the basics because societally we've moved so fast and cognitively it's like everything's just melted. What is different about your self-help books, Nadia and Katia, to those on the market. It's a very fast-growing genre of non-fiction. It's like what you just said. It, um, it's stuff we, sh- we all know. Eat, sleep, rest, drink, water. <laughs> but they're, they're gentle reminders for everyone. And the books, you can pick them up on any page and there's like a small tip that's achievable for you to do. And I think that's why people are so attracted to those books because they're not so far out in the sense, okay, you go stand on a mountain on one leg and... Well, it says the real world. It's yeah, like exactly. The real world rituals for the real yeah. world. Yeah, so it's for everyone and just to take a little piece from wherever you can. But you had um, one of Jonah's friends, her, one of Katia's kids' friends was 11 years old and he picked up the book on comf- the page on confidence and he started trying out little football tricks and you know he was a really really shy kid and he asked a receptionist where the toilet was and the mum phoned Katia like it was a huge big deal because the kid was so shy and he just was like oh well I read you know Katia's book and it said be com- try something you haven't done before you know so that's that's an 11 yeah that, uh, that would be our Good. dream but um <laughs> three. but from 11 to whatever age they're just little things that we can try and that each thing is a small um you know it's like putting a little bit of savings in your bank account so that when the shit goes down, banking the self-care, because when something big happens in your life, whether that's a divorce or a death or losing a job, you're kind of running on empty. Mm. And if you have a little bit of self-care, you have a little bit more to move through. If there was some food in the fridge, I wouldn't have just broken down in tears. I would have had some things to put together and be able to eat and calmed it all down a little quicker. It's kind of like building like emotional rations. Mm stockpiling for when you you really need to dig in. Laura, you're all about celebrating the everyday, mm-hmm. the everyday changes and what is more everyday. Well, I say what is more everyday than lunch break, but actually so many of us don't utilize the lunch break. How would you suggest to someone that has long forgotten the art of taking a lunch break to rediscover it and what can they do with your what can they do with their lunch break to help with self-care, to learn some tools? Um, so I think in terms of sort of motivating people to use their lunch break, this is a bit of a, again, sorry, I'm, I'm the negative one around the table, <laughs> but using the fact that over a year, I think a year's worth of lunch breaks adds up to 260 hours, which is seven working weeks when divided by a working week. So if you're not paid for your lunch break, which most people aren't on their contracts, they're normally contracted 35 hour weeks, um, you're gifting your employer over a month and a half salary. If you think of it that way, that really gets you away from your desk. <laughs> That's the sort of motivation to do it. I think lots of people struggle to get away from their desk because they're worried that they'll come across as being lazy or not being good employees. Mm. But um, I think the, the whole point of the book is that if you do take a break, you, you're, you give your brain some downtime and you kind of come back refreshed and you actually work better in the afternoon. And I think to to use that time, 
was, I was speaking with a guy the other day called Peter Cosgrove, who's founder of something called the Future of Work Institute in Ireland, and he made a really interesting point. That he said, if you look at your work calendars, effectively what you're looking at is everybody else's time because you'll have meetings, calls, catch-ups, everything scheduled in, and you never schedule in time for yourself. So actually your whole day isn't your day at all. It's everybody else's day. And I thought that was really interesting because when you think about a lunch break, if you, you can schedule that in and it doesn't look weird in your diary to put lunch in and just to step outside, even if it's for 20 minutes or half an hour, um, and to do something with it, but, you know, to do something for yourself that's something you might have been wanting to do at the weekend or on holiday and just break it down into little chunks. Um, from a self-care point of view, that could be anything from just sort of sitting on a park bench and looking at the view to, um, you know, doing some art, reading a book, writing some poetry, um, you know, learning a language. There's, there's so many different things you can do and there's 52 things you can do in my <laughs> book. Um, but, you know, from, from the self-care point of view, it is just letting your brain switch off from your phone, from your emails, from your computer, from your screen, just, just step away from technology and just look at something different and non-work related. Just stemming the flow. Yeah. Of the 52 things in your book, mm -hmm. which ones do you think bring about the kind of most positive force for looking after yourself or feeling refreshed or any of those tenets of self-care? That um, I think anything that sort of quiet and reflective so the first thing I did was um, letter writing and I always go back to that as a kind of really nice way of just sort of re regrouping yourself almost and you know I think we're so used to writing text messages yeah, and emails. It's a dying art now isn't it? It the, is. The thank you letter thank, as well. Oh my god yeah I'm <laughs> terrible at thank you letters um, but it's just you know, we, we're so used to kind of firing things off without thinking about what we're really writing and to sit down with a pen and paper. Firstly, bizarrely, actually just the sensation of writing on paper is hugely therapeutic. Um, but secondly, you have to think about what you're going to say before you commit it to paper and you've got to kind of structure the letter. And so it really makes you check in with yourself, really. Andy, your book, Happiness, Your Route Map to Inner Joy, was published last year and aims to transform your thinking. How does it do this? Um, well, if we go back to uh, my, my background is as a happiness researcher, so 12 years of, of interviewing happy people and trying to find out why they're so happy. And that comes against the background of having a degree in psychology. So back in the day, I studied psychology. And psychology was, and pretty much still is, the science of people who aren't feeling very good. So I, every single lecture I went to at uni was named after an illness. So I was, you know, phobic disorders, anxiety, depression. So I became quite learned and quite... Um, uh, quite knowledgeable about things that could go wrong with you. But there wasn't a single lecture in my degree about happiness or well-being or feeling good. It's like uh, human emotions of positivity weren't validly, they weren't worth studying. So then I discovered positive psychology. So in 2005 uh, at Loughborough, I um, basically did a research project which um, if you map people on how they feel, then what you'll find is far too many people are feeling a million miles away from how, how, uh, how good they can. So, but I decided to study the people who are already feeling amazing. Um, so, and the psychologist completely missed a trick because think of it, psychologists have never studied people who are already happy, <laughs> but largely because they're not ill, they tend not to be ill. So I, I set out on this challenge, it took me 12 years to get the PhD, but out of that, what the big realisation and the, probably the most obvious thing in the world that most people never really consider, the starting point for happiness really is to understand that your happiness isn't real, as in it's not a thing, so it's not got a shape and a mass and a form, you can't buy it in Sainsbury's. Happiness is a feeling, so it's an emotion, and therefore it's what we call a mental construct, which in plain, simple English means that there's really only one place your happiness can come from, and that's your thinking. Now, which is a little bit controversial, because some people argue that, surely, no, my happiness is in my new shoes or my whatever. But it's actually how you're thinking about your new shoes that brings you happiness, not, it's not the shoes. So what is, we're in this pursuit of this materialistic thing that we think we're going to purchase that and make us happier, or chase the promotion, I'll work longer hours. Um, and there's a big mismatch between between what you've got to do, your to-do list, as I call it. So everybody in this room and everybody listening to this podcast will have a to-do list that's longer than both arms. Um, you've got too many emails, too many meetings, too many things to meet people to catch up with. And I'm less about that. And I don't think that's as important as something over the other side, which is what I call your to-be list. And positive psychology sits over this side here where it's, it's quite brave and, in fact, requires a degree of honesty to point the finger back at yourself and say, OK, who am I being while I'm doing those things on my list. And I think this is the big, the really, really big deal is, are you being world-class? Are you being, um, are you looking after yourself to the point whereby you've got energy and passion and positivity and hope and optimism? Or are you being like everybody else and just being ground down by the rush hour and a late train and the drizzle? Because where positive psychology sits, if you can get 
to be your best self on a more consistent basis, then it's a bit spooky how the universe works, but more things get ticked off the to-do list because you're more productive. And I think that ultimately, I'm not saying your to-do list is not important, but who you're being while you're doing it is a real big, big deal. And I, I love the fact that, you, that you're, you're honest enough to admit you've had a bad day and you sit on the stairs and have a sob. I think, I mean, it breaks my heart a little bit, but I think it's inevitable you are allowed to have a bad day. And I think any of us sitting around here, and we're not happy clappy, it's not happy clappy land. Life is tough, it's full on, it's relentless, it's exhausting. Particularly for the people this podcast aimed at, is your young professionals who are out there working every hour. And I think, well, who are you being while you're doing it is a really, really big question. And if you can step into being your best self on a consistent basis, and I think all the books from all the people around the table are about trying to do that. There's so many things there that I think really that you said that I think are really interesting that I'd like to pick up on. What you said about having a bad day, I think there's a real fear about having a bad day. We escalate emotionally quite a lot now. Instead of having a bad day, you hear people say, you know, I'm so insert swear word, stressed, I'm yeah. so busy, I'm very depressed, you hear... Right. right, was it a bad day or was it a bad five minutes that you're milking, right? Because I don't want to get too controversial. Mm. You haven't had a, bad, had a bad day, you've had one... So, so your brain has got what's called negativity bias, which essentially means you're predisposed as a human mm -hmm. being to spot the negative. So one bad driver will ruin your entire commute. One late train, how was your day? Oh, don't talk to me about my day. Your day's been fantastic. The late train has been the one little thing that's let you down and that's what you focus on as you go through through the door of an evening, spreading your negativity to the people you love the most. It makes no sense at all. So positive psychology is retraining your mental, uh, I call it um, intentional strategies, the, the things that you can learn to do to feel amazing, even when your train's late. I mean, I know it's hard oh, on a Monday morning in the drizzle when your train doesn't turn up, but that has less impact on your happiness than the way you're thinking about it. That is what's killing you. So it's got um, some similarities with CBT. Uh, there is a big CBT thing. I think it goes a step further. I don't want to kind of get into too spooky territory and I don't want people thinking, listening to this podcast thinking I'm a weirdo because I know some stuff that's weird. I think the girls over there do as well, actually. But I don't I'm think not you gonna, can I'd, control how I'd, any of us think. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I know, I know some stuff that's on the edges of believability and I don't want to go there, not on the first podcast. It's like a first day. You wouldn't talk about this. All right, we don't but, have to. But positive psychology is really, really deadly simple because it's about most people are putting their happiness off to some point in the future so I describe it like a pot of emotional I'll gold at the end of, I'll be happy at the Christmas I'll be happy at Easter I'll be happy when I retire positive psychology and in fact all the books around this table are about putting happiness in the moment and in the now and that's what we're missing I think we've probably all experienced that at some point. I remember thinking when I was moving house and I thought, if when I move into that house, I'll be so happy. And then I got into the house and I was still feeling a bit... I was like, well, come on then. Where is it? Give it to me. But as you say, you... It comes from within. It's not just going to be bestowed upon you like a cloak. But hold on. <laughs> no, I have to harness you. I remember this from last time. What do you think holds people back from being happy? Uh, what holds them back is that they're looking for happiness in the wrong place entirely. They're looking for it at the far end of the rainbow. You're never going to find it here. If you're so busy putting your happiness off, you know, there's, there's something called destination addiction, which essentially means on a Monday morning, most working people, do you know what their aim is? Their aim is to get through the week or survive Hump the week. Day. Yeah, so, so you might not say, but on Monday morning, most people get out of bed and they go, Phew, here we go again, another week to survive. Or you might have a holiday booked in three weeks, somebody says, how are you? Only three weeks to Hold go. Hold on, I want to do a quick poll here. Do you feel like that on a Monday? Not on a Monday, but I do feel like that about my holiday coming up, I have to say. You get excited Do you feel like that on a Monday? No. Do you feel like that on a Monday? I don't know if I do. Yeah, but these are weird. I feel like that on a Monday, and I'm the only person here that hasn't written a book about, uh, about self-care, so I think there's something in that. <laughs> Can I just add, though, from um, what Andy was saying, is one of the practices that we do, which really helps with like actually making what you're saying a th like to feel it, mm -hmm. is gratefulness. Yeah. So... Um, we used to do this great, well, we still do this grateful journal. And in it, you write the three things that you're grateful for, but also the good things that happened today. So you're remembering what what is it that was happening today that was really good and how it made you feel. So you're not forgetting and being like, oh, my day sucked, you know. And those small things that you can be grateful for every day will build and build and build. And it actually has proven to give you something like 20% more happiness if you keep a grateful journal.
It is. Once again, it's in line with CBT. Here's a, here's a question you won't understand, but it's a really cool question. What hasn't happened that you didn't want that you haven't celebrated? It's such a cool question, right? You could repeat it 10 times, you won't get it, till I give you an example, right? So what hasn't happened you didn't want you haven't celebrated is, so I, I stayed in London last night, I opened my curtains, and there wasn't a zombie apocalypse outside, right? Now, I didn't want a zombie apocalypse, and there wasn't one, but I didn't punch the air and go, woohoo, no zombie apocalypse. And then you drive to your place of work. I haven't run over any badgers on the way here, but I don't pull in the car park going, well, no badgers murdered by me today. And I, think, I know that's a bit weird, but actually there's a lot of bad stuff that could have happened to you that hasn't. And if you, but part of positive psychology, retraining your brain mm. to away from the negativity towards the positivity. I did, I did with some kids again, kids, because kids are so cool. I said to 600 kids the other way, what, what hasn't happened that you didn't want, they haven't celebrated. And this little lad, age six, says, uh, I haven't been murdered in cold blood by a ventriloquist dummy wearing a clown outfit. I'm like, okay, fair <laughs> dude. Another little girl, I went to the toilet this morning and there wasn't a crocodile in it. And I said, did you celebrate it? She said, no, but I will next time. So next time she flushes the loaf, she's going to go, no crocodiles in there. And what happens is you start to be grateful for things that haven't, bad things that haven't happened. That's the kind of link with gratitude. I think it's like, I describe gratitude like fertiliser of happiness. It's the absolute crucial key thing. If everybody listening to this gets a pen and paper and lists 10 things that you really appreciate but take for granted, right? I, I already know what's on that list, right? I know your top four already. It'll be health, it'll be health and people. Health, it'll be health and your people. And then weird stuff creeps in. So like electricity and the NHS and democracy and somebody once wrote tin salmon on his list. Number one, just above his wife and kids, which was a bit odd. Um, (laughs) But but if you look at that list and you keep it by your bed and when you wake up on a Monday morning, look at your list and go, wow, look at me. Look at me with my tin salmon and central heating and democracy. And my leather trim socks. And your leather trim socks, yes. (laughs) That's an in-joke. That's green room talk. (laughs) Look at what you've got, not what you haven't got. Be grateful. Laura, how did you start to feel different when you started to put your lunch breaks to productive use? Um, I think that the main notice, but I actually didn't really notice, and maybe that's a gratitude thing. Um, I didn't notice straight away how, sorry, how much of an impact it had on me. It was when I then couldn't take the lunch breaks that I noticed how much of an impact that had on me. So the negative impact I noticed more. Um, how so, did you feel? Well, so when when they were then taken away from me after about sort of three months of having sort of pretty much consecutive lunch breaks every day, I suddenly, my energy just crashed Mm. and my mood crashed with it and my job satisfaction crashed with it. And it it was extraordinary that something as simple as a lunch break could have that much of an effect on me. And I think I noticed, along with the energy, my diet crashed um, because because I was working through the day and kind of eating at my desk and kind of refueling rather than actually enjoying eating and, and taking time out. Um, by the end of the day, I'd um, sort of go to the shops, get a ready meal, get a takeaway, eat junk when I got home, have a glass of wine to kind of pick me up and then wake up the next morning feeling awful, grab a coffee. Inevitably, you want to have a pastry with your coffee. And so the diet just went completely out of the window whereas I noticed when I did take a lunch break I'd kind of have so much energy at the end of the day that I'd want to cook for myself and prepare something and is fresh air a vital component of it I think so I think definitely for me I mean I know when I started working straight out of uni I um I basically stopped sleeping um within a few months of starting working and I went to the doctors and um my vitamin d levels had completely pretty much all all but gone um you're meant to be over 70 something and I was 19 so it's like really really low and that all and and with that I lost my sleep and I know that the vitamin d isn't fresh air but it is being outside Mm. and I do think that just being outside and getting fresh air getting light getting just looking further beyond your computer screen um, has a massive impact on how you're feeling physically and mentally. Nadia and Katia, what made you want to start writing your books about self, self-care? Did it come from a personal point of view or had both of you seen clients or people visiting your cafe and you felt, hold on, there's something here that I know that I think lots of people don't? Well, I think that you kind of think people that do yoga or eat healthily take care of themselves, but some of that stuff actually comes from withholding and kind of being mean to yourself in a funny warped way and so we started to realize that it was more about an attitude towards yourself rather than just you could go to a yoga class but you could still be really mean to everybody that you were with 
you know, for the rest of the day and kind of nasty. Or you could not eat gluten, but it was kind of a weird eating disorder as well. There's a restriction kind of thing, on everything. And, um, and then we realized that for ourselves, we would be kind of helping other people, but not necessarily, you know, when you're self-employed, it's difficult because you don't always have a lunch break that you give yourself or you don't have paid holiday or paid sick day. You have to be your own kind of disciplinarian. You have to be your own disciplinarian, but until you realize that giving yourself some self-care actually refuels you and not just powering through those sick days and taking a few paracetamols and like getting through those four classes and then I'll rest. You kind of have to do it for yourself first. So as we were writing the book, we became really good at it because we were like... I was going to say, do you feel like it had a positive impact on your lives? And even on my children's lives. Mm. Yeah, because we had to... Practice really what live we were it preaching. and practice, <laughs> and uh, it, it made a huge difference to all of us. What were some of the changes you, for anyone with children, what were some of the changes that you enacted or you encouraged your children to adopt? To that I mean, so the other morning, I am not a morning person, but my husband and one of my my eldest son is, and uh, he, t- my husband, took this beautiful picture of Jonah. He had come down at 6.30 in the morning and he'd lit all the candles on the dining table and he did the waking to candlelight and no electricity and he sat there and he was just reading. And it was so beautiful that he does all of that stuff. And at night he puts the aromatherapy diffuser on and he puts his lavender oil on and he does a little guided meditation. I mean, they love it and they do all of that stuff. And so all I think it's helped with their sleeping. It's helped with teaching them downtime and the importance of like no technology after this time because now we're going to have a bath with our essential oils and, you know, they understand it a lot better. And you're teaching them that it's all within their control as mm-hmm. in they have access to the aromatherapy Oil, oh yeah, they have to access to all the of candles, it, yeah. so they can create their own kind of calm space. I think it's such an important gift for them because they're always going to have this knowledge of how can I regulate my moods, how can I regulate my emotions. Like if I'm really upset, I can go and sit and breathe, or you know, I'm coming home from school, I. You know, they definitely get hanger after school and they just go and they know that they have to make themselves something. And it's just such great tools for them to, to go forward. But I think also kids learn from such a young age. You see young girls, you know, they see their mums on the phone and they're yeah. on the phone or just doing whatever mum does or dad does. So from a very young age, they're already looking up to you and seeing what you do. So if, as a woman, if you look in the mirror and you keep going on about how much you hate your body and how awful it is, your kids are just watching that. If you're eating bad food, your kids are kind of emulating that. So to show them that it's okay and it's good to look after yourself and take care of yourself and that you are worth it teaches them that as well. And we kind of have had a mixed bag of it as we were growing up our mum was super super healthy but in a very restrictive kind of a way so we ate well but it was always about how do I look and you know do I look okay so it wasn't nourishing in the same way so nourishment is something that we've had to learn as we've gotten older and um in its myriad forms nourishment. yeah exactly you know body spirit soul the whole lot of it yeah that's something I'm very much learning now is that kids from even the tiniest age, Mm. they just absorb things like sponges. Mm -hmm. So the technology thing, which you brought up, is obviously, you know, we know enough now about tech to know um, how much damage it can do when we use it too much or we don't put, you know, the right barriers in place. There's a lot of books being written I know that you guys also enjoyed, sorry, Nadia and Katia, I know you also enjoyed Dr. Catherine Price's book about mm, how to break yeah, up with your phone. Um, I'm quite passionate about putting my phone to bed 
it goes to bed before me and it gets up after me. Whenever I tell friends that, they always say they envisage a little four-poster bed. <laughs> I think you can actually You can get a little bag buy. that they put, uh, you, you hang it bed. on your door like and it goes dog. into this little thing. Yeah, like a sleeping bag. <laughs> I'd quite like to get Andy one because he looks so mystified no, by no, a, I'm, I'm a bed in, for a phone. I'm inspired by what's just been said because what we're really saying here is self-care. Um, if you get it right and you're authentic with it, then it also helps the people around you, mm. all right? And that, I think, is the most crucial thing. I think in terms of parenting, I know you've got a little human being in your life. It's, it's the general rule of parenting is that children won't do what you say, but they will do, do what you, you do, do. Yeah. yeah, right? And so you're absolutely right. If you've got to, whether you like it or not, your kid is going to turn into you. So have a good look at yourself. Go back to that to-be list. Who am I being? Well, I'm going about it. It's very easy to give them an iPad at age two and crack on with that. Totally engaging with your children is the most important thing you'll ever do, particularly up to the age of five. My mother always used to say, do what I say and not what I do. And I'd be like, well, that's never going to... No, it doesn't work like that. No, it would be easy if it did, but it doesn't. I'm really interested that you just used the word authenticity because it's something I've been thinking a lot about for the last six weeks. I just wrote a long-form piece of writing about our current obsession with authenticity in a fake news world. You know, we're always seeking truth, but it it doesn't really, it's shape-shifting, it doesn't really exist. And my conclusion was that we call it authenticity, but I think what we're actually desperately searching for is contentment, which is pretty closely related to gratitude and definitely, I think, from a layperson's point of view, what self-care is all about, because there's a lot of acceptance yeah, I mean, happiness is a continuum from um, a sort of nice low-level contentment, being comfortable in your own skin and being g- genuinely happy within your own, between your two ears. And there's a continuum there all the way to the other end, which is like, woo fantastic, Tigger, leaping around the forest, hard annoying to maintain. people. Yeah. yeah, but hard to maintain. Now, happiness is all of those things. Um, and I just think you've hit the nail on the head. The contentment end of that is the, it's probably the most elusive one. If you can find that, then I think that's really the key. Because I don't, I mean, if you watch Winnie the Pooh, Tigger actually just, I don't think, I think he just annoys people anyway. That's too happy. You can be too happy. My research shows you can be too happy. If you go in on Monday going, woohoo, don't those weekends drag, you know, then you're going to get bullied at work because that's not socially acceptable. Jazz hands on a Monday is not socially acceptable. (laughs) But that inner peace and that contentment, and that's back to self-care again. I mean, it sounds so we're sitting around here talking about eating healthy food and we're going to talk about sleep in a minute, I hope. I hope, because that's the missing thing as well particularly with teenagers, actually. They're in this kind of, you know, they've got the the 46-inch telly in their room and their Xbox in their room, and we're wondering why boys are not concentrating in class the next day. It's because they've not been to sleep. I think something I always find quite interesting about teenagers and sleeping, though, is that they're on a completely different... Don't they naturally want to fall asleep around... 1am when you're a teenager which is then yes I mean you're going through all sorts of transitions and your brain's rewiring itself I I think treating yourself to some decent sleep is the ultimate in self-care I know that you have what I deem quite a radical sleep yeah this is a bit late to me now yeah Yeah. you're in bed at about 5pm and you're up at (laughs) 2am I've exaggerated it's very unfair are you um, you Um, 8.30 to 5.30 I'm I'm, I'm normally be in bed by half nine latest and asleep by 25 to 10 um, and up at and up at, up at half five or six, but uh, it's because I'm a morning person. These winter months. No, no. Well, black. well, we, yeah, the thing is, I, well, I read. <laughs> I, I shared. I because kind of, I know we had a we had a, a session not long ago. <laughs> we spoke about sleep last time, right? And it's, I did look it up between last time and this time, and it's the University of Warwick. Uh, so a proper university study. And oh, they yeah, found, you tweeted and they, me I did tweet more. it, yeah, because I, I wasn't sure if I'd made it up or not, but no, it was there. <laughs> and so if you get a good night's sleep consistently, so we're talking eight, eight, eight or nine hours, yeah, if you can, then that is worth £200,000 worth of happiness every year to you. So it's like a lottery win. And I just think treating yourself to a lottery win, I mean, why wouldn't you want to win the lottery? So getting yourself some proper sleep is... I know it's hard when you've got little people in your life, but it's not it's impossible. It's just nine hours is, I think, quite... Difficult for so many people. Only because we're making it. Why? What are we do? What, because well, we're can't go our out. Fans. You couldn't go out in the evening. Well, you can. I mean, you can you know, on a Friday and a Saturday. But it's <laughs> quite restrictive in its own way. That that's that is something that I think is quite interesting when we're talking about it. Is it's not without its own. But I think it's about finding balance too, mm. because I think that like I know that my limit is I can't do more than three nights a week out and I do have to do it sometimes. Yeah, but if it's my choice, I would prefer two. 
and then I'm happy. And then if I get to bed by 10, 10.30 and I get up at six, I'm really, really happy. I have a really good day. But there's some days that that's not always possible. Mm. And so I think it's just starting to pay attention to what works for each one of us as an individual. For someone else, it might be that five, six hours sleep is fine and they're, they're in a good mood. That doesn't work for me. So I have to figure out what works for me. And I think each individual has to work out what works for them. But going to bed, looking at my phone, reading tweets about the politics at the moment doesn't make me go to bed a happy person. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me go to bed really wound up and really agitated. So my phone so that so I make sure my phone <laughs> does go to bed early. <laughs> and I read a book and I do the things that um you know, we talk about it in our book too is we try and come home and set the bedroom up like like you would in a hotel they turn down your room mm. they draw the curtains they put the bed down we don't really put a chocolate on the pillow but, <laughs> no, but I you do know that. I co when I get when I well I work from home mostly but when I finish work and I take my baby upstairs to give her a bath I shut my curtains and I put on our lamps by our mm. bed and you create I, the yeah, vibe of so relaxation exactly as opposed to this thing that we're doing at the moment where we're couples and we're both going into bed with our computers and we're on them and the lights are on it's not conducive to winding down and relaxing and so I think that it used to be that we didn't have all this stuff that kept us up for so late but we could be out with our friends and having a social environment and that's a different energy to being on a computer until 11 or 12 but at I night. I think quite often, we spoke about busyness earlier, I think quite often we're busy doing the wrong things. Mm. Yeah, and there's definitely, there's still a bravado to having worked through the night and like it's it's almost like I've pulled an all-nighter. Exactly, yes. and you're kind of and proud it's not, there's of not a focus on productivity, that's what I yeah. find so odd is that it shouldn't be about the hours you've spent mm. doing something, it's how productive you've been in that hour, those yeah. hours. And actually I find now that I'm paying for childcare, I've never been so productive in my life because <laughs> I think, well that cost me £11. <laughs> you know, if yeah. I go to a meeting, I'm like, that was £8.50. Yeah. Um, but there are, I, I, it's interesting because as a journalist, people often find it quite surprising that I switch off my email and my phone when I'm writing. And I think but 20 years ago, you wouldn't have expected someone to write a piece with knock on the door mm. every five minutes. When you're doing your things, not you, mm. everyone doing their things on their lunch break, how mandatory? I feel like I know your answer, but I want to hear more. Yeah. Is it that it's tech free? Well, for me, it definitely is. Just because yeah. for me, it was about getting away from that. And I noticed just the effect it had on my brain that like you could feel your brain sort of sighing with relief as soon as you kind of stepped out and just, like I said before, looked beyond something that wasn't you know, 50 centimetres in front of you on your desk. And so I think some of them, but some of them require tech. Like when I was learning a language, obviously you need to listen to it on your on your iPhone or whatever. Um, but I think the further away from it you can get, the better. And it is, it's, I went to Mexico last year and we were staying in this place where there was absolutely no signal at all. And I, I realised that for the first time in probably about four or five years, I'd had an uninterrupted thought because I used now I've turned all my notifications off on my phone, but I used to have them on. And you're thinking or you're typing or emailing and something else pops up and your thought just gets completely diverted. And I was sitting there just thinking and then I realised, oh my God, I've actually just finished a sentence in my brain without it being interrupted by something else and being, you know, pushed in another direction. And I think, yeah, switching your emails off when you're when you're writing, if you don't do that, you completely your brain is just spliced up into tons of tiny little pieces. Mm, yeah. Always. Yeah. As a pioneer of the work-life balance, yes, pioneer, <laughs> how, what practical tips would you offer someone who wants to instill more self-care into their working day? Um, so aside from the lunch breaks, I think I heard a really good one the other day, which was to set an out-of-office um, saying, I only check my emails at 9am, 11am, 1 p.m., 3 p.m., whatever. Um, and if you want to contact me urgently outside of those times, call me. And I think that's really clever because I'm definitely one of those people that has the notifications popping up on the bottom right-hand corner of my screen. And it means that at the end of the day, suddenly I find, you know, 10 emails I've got halfway through answering. And I feel like I've done all this work that I haven't actually done. And so I think that that's a really good way of saying, okay, these are the, the times I'm going to be answering emails these are the times I'm going to be focusing on work myself and not looking at emails. If you need me, call me, but otherwise... And do you, you think the out-of-office is still effective? Because I feel like 
everyone has and you know mm. I'm I'm away from my debt I'm at Sainsbury's I won't be able to reply for an hour mm. I feel like now I remember putting on an out of office when I'd had a baby and it was completely ignored I remember someone emailing me on the label being like I understand you just had a baby but I've got a really important question oh <laughs> <laughs> I think you're of my always going to get people like that <laughs> But then I guess that's up to you. That's your own discipline too, you know, and then it all comes back to having this discipline to to look after ourselves and our boundaries, whatever those are for us. So that worry about being rude. That's what I find so difficult is Yeah, but it it, it, that's a that's like saying no, you know, and and that is there's a worry that we were at a party the other night. We were at a dinner and this girl kind of got really into talking. She's like, I'm having a party on Saturday night. Will you come? And I knew I couldn't no. go. And I did. I just went, no, I can't. I'm sorry. And she just was looked at me like, did you just say? N-? And I, I knew that I had a really busy weekend of work yeah. this weekend. And I wasn't going to go to a party of someone that I just met. And but, I didn't know. And also know. that has led to this really tiring modern epidemic of flaking. I was meant to have dinner. There were meant to be seven of us school friends there last night. And there was only three. Now, it was great that there was only three. We got to properly catch up. But why did those other four say yes when they knew they probably wouldn't want to come on the day? Mm. And I, I think you're right. It's It's... We need to, I mean, it's something that's definitely been hinted at here, is we need to think, am I really able to go? Mm. You know, do I really want to go? Am I just saying yes to kind of like skip the slightly uncomfortable conversation? And what your priorities are. If you have a young child, you're going to choose, you're going to choose carefully what nights you go out and who you spend that time with. It's very different to being in your 20s when you just wanted to go out every single night. You might still be in your 20s. I don't know. I am very sadly not. (laughs) You look But I think it's priorities and discipline. Mm. And I think also, I now like, really respect people when they say no I'm like wow like if I'd asked you to a party you're like no I'd be like I love you like you, you I've got I'm that point can we have dinner then? which makes me wonder why we all worry so much about yeah. doing it if someone says I can't have dinner that night that's fine you yeah. can't have dinner that night great yeah you're just like well done because <laughs> I don't have to go yeah, exactly <laughs> and I think I think everyone's in that state of mind now where like you want you almost want people to say no so that then you you can kind of say no too and I think yeah, I, I, I've got a few friends now who started doing that. And when they say it, I'm literally like, well done. And I just say to them, I'm like, thank you. Like, thank you for saying it. Or thank you for leaving early. Thank you for leaving when you wanted to leave. I'm not offended that you didn't stay till the end of the night because actually I was quite tired by 10 too. And it was really nice that everyone left. Sometimes <laughs> when I go out at night and I'm out late and I look at all the people that are out and I'm like, don't you guys have to go to work tomorrow? I'm so shocked mm. that so many people go out so often. A lot of the people I know that go out a lot, though, that has to be, that is almost in a slightly odd way, that's the thing that makes them feel great. Mm. Like, I I like to be in more at night because I read a lot. And actually reading, for me, is probably the self-cariest thing I do. And there's a lot about bibliotherapy now and about how, you know, you can prescribe yourself books that are going to make you feel better. And I think... But for some people, being out and being social and being around people is actually where they draw their energy from. I agree. I do. I I do wonder how how other people make it worse. But I suppose it's it's the type yeah, of type of person. You it are. definitely is. There are people. I mean, we know someone who just is alive when she's out and around people. And home, they slightly sag and they might not. Yeah. Know to do I mean, so I think you need to look at sometimes that person can't be alone. Mm. and then you need to think about why can't I be alone and it's that joy of missing out and the joy of being alone um Jomo Jomo yeah but I mean we have the opposite where we kind of have to push ourselves like oh we better socialize otherwise we're gonna have zero friends (laughs) like my husband and I are just like if we make a plan for a dinner we're both like oh I really don't want to (laughs) go But we have to do it, otherwise we're just going to be him and I. <laughs> and you rarely regret it when you, yeah, when you do do exactly. it. Exactly. Andy, when people put their happiness and themselves, their own happiness first, how do you think that impacts their career? 
Um, Career-wise, it's fantastic. By the way, just I've heard it called social jet lag, what you're talking about there, is where you get invited to all these things and yeah. you're just exhausted by having to go out again. <laughs> social jet lag. That is one hell of a snowflakey yeah. problem, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I've been looking at uh, engagement in the workplace, so people who are feeling amazing at work. So what my PhD is about is about what I call flourishing. And flourishing is when your happiness is bigger than you. So it's those minority of people you can all think of in your lives who are, when they're around, you feel good as well. So they create these upward spirals of emotion in people around them and in the workplace that's probably the most important thing you'll be able to do ever um, so my my people that I've been studying they get promoted faster they well they've got 30% more energy and 27% more happiness than an average person so if I have to say to you you can have up your energy by 30% and your happiness by nearly 30% where do I sign um, you know I'd, I'd sign up for that so they they create stronger relationships they're more creative they have more they're more happiness more motivated there is not a downside to being it other than occasionally um, what you get is overwhelmed if you're a really positive person at work then people will come to you with a problem with their problem because you wouldn't go to a miserable person with your problem because they'll, they'll be miserable so you look around in the office see who's got the smile on their face they'll help you and the danger is I think it's what you were talking about earlier you can get overwhelmed <laughs> if you're really positive in the workplace the only downside is that people might take advantage so you've got to be a little bit careful you've got to learn to say no but overall career-wise I think uh, happiness and well-being is the, is the biggest thing you'll ever do in terms of your own personal progression. But I think also in your personal life and your work life, when you don't feel good, whether that's a pain in your body or you're feeling a bit down about something, you tend to be more self-involved. Mm. And when you do feel good, you just have so much more energy to give other people too. And so you tend to attract more yep. to you, whether that's more work opportunities or friendships or whatever it is. When I don't, I'm not even sure it's just about, I think you said it, the glow. It's not just about yeah. being happy, but it's just about being resourced and having energy from the inside out. When I think of glow, I think of the idea of projecting out kind of good feelings so it's in some ways just flipping that narrative a bit of when someone says how are you think instead of even if you are a bit tired or you're a bit busy at work plucking something else out of your well, language is a very but there's another podcast there on just language and how we talk and communicate with each other we are I mean the Australians call the Brits the wind and palms if you think about it you know we're a nation who are a bit doomy and gloomy I mean I come from Derby my glorious hometown if I stop a hundred people in Derby and say how are you a hundred people have learned to say oh well I'm not too bad considering <laughs> I'm fair to middling I'll be alright at five o'clock we've got a whole culture and a language that keeps us in that kind of slightly insipid black and white version of ourselves and it's this full colour this, this kind of not full on necessarily but this full colour vibrant alive version of you that literally is your gift to the world because as a parent if you do it your kids catch it off you and if you do it in the workplace then you stand out for the right reasons people are talking about you in management meetings behind your back saying wow I'm trying really hard actually to do that more so that when someone says how are you because it's such a boring answer to say I'm busy or I'm tired and then you get into that kind of competitive busyness or tiredness and it's a complete non non-conversation you see it happen our small talk now has become. <laughs> I learned a good one. Instead of saying busy, productive, I'm really. Productive. I say occupied. Yeah. I'm trying to say occupied, but it's a bit weird when someone says you're really busy and I say I'm occupied. It sounds a bit like <laughs> I shut myself, shut myself in the loop. But it's important to kind of experiment with the way you describe your state. I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I learned um, when my kids were little, I would go home. And I had to change the question I asked my kids. So I thought, how, I just think, how would the best dad in the world go through the door? That's a question, that's a question for well, everybody listening to this is when you're a parent or a grandparent, how would the best version of you go through the door? And I thought, well, I might as well just do that. Because I've been going through the door very averagely, going, oh, my gosh, my I want to see you go through the door now. I go through the door now. My, my, through the door the door? now. And I, well, my kids were little at the time. I started to ask them, how, how, how was school? Was it good, fantastic, or brilliant? Right? And say it with lots of enthusiasm. And they were <laughs> only little, but then. they were like, oh, yeah, it was really good, Dad. And I started to get these That's conversations out of my kids that, that I'd never... Because normally I'd say, how was school? Boring. What did you learn? Can't remember. And that was the end of the conversation. I'd asked that for years. It's not my kids' fault that their dad's asking such a shit question, all right? So I needed to, I needed to change the question. So how was your day? Was it good, fantastic, or brilliant? It became a thing in our house. And we would spend 
a lot. Do you still of time. do it now? Now, well, my kids are big, and we've shortened it, it to GFLB, right? So it's a family tradition now. Is that I don't see them that often because they were they're away now. But when they come home, how, you know, how are you? G- good, fantastic, or brilliant? Big hug, and it's you. You stand a better chance of having a positive conversation. So on Monday morning, don't ask your work colleagues how was your weekend. Ask them what was the highlight of your weekend. Slight change of words gives you a better chance of a way into a positive. Being conversation. more specific, I think, as well. Because mm. if you say how are you, and someone goes good. So now I try and say, "What have you done anything fun this week?" Yeah, like you know, more so that there's more of a. It's just a better way. It's not a guarantee, rapport. but it's a better way of getting into a positive conversation. Because how mm. are you? It opens up and it's an open goal for all. Oh, well, and also, people I've heard people say, gout. "Yeah, I'm good," when they've just gone to a funeral. Yeah. Like that is not. <laughs> that's it's small not talk. An though. We're not really listening to each other. It's all small talk anyway, isn't it? So, um, what about for people on the road? With Marriott Hotels. Have you got any practical tips for how you well, can my, practice I've, self-care? Well, I've said whilst... about sleep. Sleep is the most important thing, I think, um, particularly on the road. Uh, and I tend to, my diet goes a little bit, um, you know. It's very hard quite, to eat well when you're travelling, well isn't it? I try to eat reasonably healthy, but not as well healthy as if um, I'm at home. But I think, honestly, a good night's sleep. And I don't, I, it's not meant to be a Marriott plug. I would plug it anyway if this wasn't sponsored by Marriott. But treat yourself to a decent hotel. People listen to this podcast are clever people. They're, they're, they're go-getters, Right. Treat yourself to a decent hotel with a nice bed and um, a gym. That's it. Self-care sorted on the road. Very nice. Does anyone else have any tips for self-care when you're travelling? I'd say sort of get outside as much as you can. Mm. Like I, think, I know, you know, even with jet lag, the best thing, cure for it is sunshine and, and being outside. And I think same for sleep for me, fresh air, oxygen. I think just... You know, and exploring the local area and feeling you're actually there. I was reading an interview the other day with mm. David Guetta, and um, he was, and it just made me feel so depressed. Like he said, he, you know, he spends his whole time travelling that he has to have a post-it note on the um, the, the deck of wherever he's DJing because he doesn't even know where he is. So he gets his production team to write the name of the city where he is because he doesn't know what country he's in. Michelle Obama said the other day that she travelled so much that her PA would talk about somewhere and she'd go, God, I'd love to go there. And the PA would say, you've been there? She'd go, I've never been there. Yeah. She said you were there in, you know, 2016. Yeah. And I mean, Peripatetic lifestyle where you don't see, probably as well with a DJ, like you ever see oh, in daylight. Yeah, probably not. Actually, he was the one that also mentioned the sunlight thing for jet lag. He was like, best cure ever, just get outside. But I just thought it was really interesting. And I know, you know, like we, we're not all DJs, I mean, all traveling that much. But often, if you're traveling with work, you rarely feel like you're actually in the place that you are mm. in because you go straight from the airport to the conference center or the office or whatever it is. And I think, you know, take a lunch break, get outside or get up half an hour early and go for a little walk around the hotel and just kind of get a sense of where you are. I think for some people as well, um, their version of self-care is this one holiday a year mm. that they've saved up for, you yep. know. And so if you, if that is your life, then make it somewhere, like Andy said, somewhere worth staying, somewhere where you are going to be taken care of, the food's good, you don't have to think about anything instead of, you know, budget and you're just sort of more stressed when you come home. <laughs> Try and avoid the meal deals as well. It's not, it's not a good lifestyle, having a meal deal from Tesco. It's not, it's not long-term, it doesn't work. Meal deal I think, and also just thinking about in all of these things are investing in yourself in some way. So even if that's a little bit of time, I used to get off the plane and go straight to work because I was trying to make it all, you know, work. And it, now I make sure that I give myself a day off when I arrive so that I can have a minute to kind of gather myself, walk around, get outside, go for a swim, whatever it is, just to ground me. Because especially when you do long haul traveling, you've kind of traveled, but you haven't quite arrived yet. And so trying to book things where you're flying and going straight to a meeting are never really a very good idea. So try and incorporating a little bit of self-care time in your schedule. I like that as a metaphor for self-care, arriving. Traveling, kind of completing your journey rather than feeling like you've come to some sort of abrupt Mm. halt. And I think actually that's quite interesting because I think so many of us constantly feel like you are doing things in this abrupt way. We're not doing things to completion and we're not taking the time, whether mentally or, or physically, to reach that place because everything's quite rushed. Before we finish, shall we summarize with... I'm going to go around one tip from each of you, one self-care takeaway 
for our listener off the top of your head. I'm going to stop. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, we'll stop. Right. Um, can I go with this? <laughs> Always teeming with tips. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just one. Uh, just one very quick one, yeah. Um, I would say self-care for you and somebody else is the science of hugging. So if you don't look too closely at the science, then what you'll find is the average hug lasts 2.1 seconds. So if you're a huggy person and you go for your hug, it's like one, two, finished. But for the love to transfer between two people, a hug needs to last seven seconds or longer. How do you know this? uh, Just trust me. Just trust me. Just practice it, right? So (laughs) I'm hoping that somebody at home that you love or you're going to see your mum at the weekend and instead of the normal hug, even if you're a non-hugger, going for your hug, not strangers in the park, obviously, you know, just people that you love. And you're going for the hug, and they'll be expecting a 2.1, but if you treat them to the full seven seconds without counting out loud, it is a beautiful thing, because that's just long enough for that person to know that you love them. You don't need to say anything. It is a beautiful thing, I promise you. Modicum of entrapment there, but it's... Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there should only be 12 people in your life who are close enough to you to get that, by the way. Only just 12. Yeah. Where's this coming from as well? I'll tweet you. I'll tweet you. I'll I'll send you the research. So seven seconds for 12 people. Yes. I mean, I love that because that's incredibly specific advice. I hope you're all going to give me advice that's specific. I'm I'm taking this away. Laura, do you have any incredibly specific? Um, I think sort of schedule it in. I think put, put time in your diaries, whether it's before work, at lunch, after work, evenings, things that you want to do and um, I remember mentioning this before as saying you know I tried doing kind of putting me 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 in some of Did my you evenings just write, I just wrote me and it's in my work calendar too so my boss was like what are you doing <laughs> but um, and then you know someone would call up and say are you free on Monday and look in my diary and say me and I'm like yes I'm free <laughs> and it didn't work and so what I found really worked was putting in things I wanted to do instead of putting in me that is specific yeah and so you know if there's an exhibition you want to go to or yeah you want to write a letter or you actually put the task in that you want to do and then if someone contacts you and says do you want to do something on Monday you can say oh I was going to go to this exhibition but do you want to come with me and so you're not losing that time for yourself but you're just sharing it great advice oh me okay um so today I woke up feeling really groggy and I went for an hour walk in the rain in the wind and I felt so Mm. good when I got home the elements yeah it was just like all the sensations of that cold, wet wind on my skin and the hearing it, my whole body just woke up. And so, yeah, I think being in nature, walking, grounding yourself is a really good one. Nadia, the end on you. Um, paying attention to the thoughts that you have about yourself. I think that's uh, certainly a very big one for me that I can be very self deprecating and kind of tough on myself and so I have to really pay not and and not to be really American and positive about everything either but just to notice I would never talk to a child or to a dear friend the way that I talk to myself and so I have to really pay attention to that. I think that's very good advice. A big thank you to our panellists for taking part in the discussion. You can catch more episodes of the In Focus podcast by keeping an eye out on travelbrilliantly.co.uk or by following Marriott Hotels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much for listening.